Well, Father, that is the prayer of our hearts today, that we would see your appearing, that you would come and deliver us even from this wicked world. Father, we, don't, we know we don't know the day or the hour. We want to be faithful in the meantime. Would you use your word now to encourage us and strengthen us? Thank you for this great and accurate account from Matthew's gospel of our Lord Jesus teaching us with his, in his own words about his return. Father, we want to understand these things. We want to be discerning. We want to be uh, Christ-like and Christ-centered in this day and age in which we live. Use this time, I pray, to strengthen us in our walk, to help us shine brightly as lights in this wicked world, even in these last days. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. We're in Matthew chapter 24 today, and we are talking about the Lord's return and and what are some of the signs of the end of the age uh, when the Lord will return in His second coming. Uh, I've noticed uh, since starting into this just a couple weeks ago as we began this study, and we'll be here for a few weeks, trying to discern our Lord's teaching on the end of the age, on His return, um, I've noticed that there's been a lot of headlines a lot of different uh, people talking about the signs of the times. Part of it's been the eclipse and the hurricanes and things like that. And one of the, one of the uh, young men in church texted me some headlines that they spotted on Fox News headlines even. It was on their science page. It was pretty interesting. I don't know if you're aware of the fact that um, according to this guy, um, his name is David Mead, and he's a numerologist. Now, numerology is the study of the numbers in the Bible. Uh, in the scripture, numbers tend to have significance. Um, for example, seven is a number of completion or even per in implying perfection. God created in seven days, and it was done, and it was good. That was a good number. Forty, for example, in the Bible is a number that, that speaks of difficulty or testing or trial. Uh, it rained for 40 days, okay, kind of a judgment. Forty days. The, the Israelites trekked in the wilderness for 40 years, a time of difficulty. Uh, our Lord was tested in the wilderness for 40 days. And fasted in the wilderness and tested there by Satan at the end of that fasting time. So numbers do have significance. But it was interesting, this headline that was uh, uh, forwarded to me caught my eye. It says, uh, the headline at Fox News Science page, it was their number one article there on Friday. Biblical prophecy claims the world will end on September 23rd. Now that's this Saturday. I hope you're ready. Now, I think you're making light of this. I won't take time to read the article, but basically what the guy did was, by looking at a lot of the current events, Irma and Harvey and, and uh, the eclipse, the recent eclipse, and using biblical numerology, that is trying to find codes in the numbers in the Bible, so though numbers have meanings, you can get in a lot of trouble with numerology. Um, we, don't, we don't go very far with numerology here at Fellowship Bible Church. But he talked about uh, and scriptures that have to do with the planets lining up. And he says that there's a planet X 
that is going to hit the world, hit the earth, hit planet earth. Planet X is screaming through the atmosphere right now, evidently, and it's going to hit the earth this Saturday, and it's going to mark the, the end of the world as we know it. One of the problems with this is, is that NASA has a pretty good eye on what's going on out there, and they say that there is no such thing as planet X. So I don't know if it's a conspiracy one way or not, um, whether NASA's hiding the truth from us or if this guy's got to figure out oh something else that this guy did was he used not only codes from numbers in scripture to figure out that this saturday september 23rd would be the last day uh, at the, uh, it would be the end of the earth but he also found some hidden codes in one of the pyramids of egypt that helped him understand this now what do you think that people and they hear christian numerologist predicts the end of the earth, the end of the age, or Christ's return. Don't you think they pretty much put Christians in the category of sort of cuckoo? <laughs> That's what I think. I think that this guy does not have it right. I think that we're going to see, I know we're going to see in our Lord's teaching in just a, a few sermons from now that the Lord is going to make clear that predicting exact dates for the Lord's return is something we should not do. We're explicitly told not to do that. So the fact of the matter is that when you read something like that and somebody makes a prediction, right away you know that they are not biblical in their thinking and they are, in essence, a false prophet. But it doesn't do the church any good, I don't think, or our reputation. When people click onto Fox News, look at the science page, and they see that some cuckoo Christian numerologist is predicting the end of the earth, but I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 24 to a much more reliable source. And the source is our Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 24 verses chapters 24 and 25 are known as the Olivet Discourse. Let me remind you, we just started this a couple weeks ago. We'll be in this section for a few more weeks talking about what the last days will look like before the Lord returns. Now, this is a very reliable source for Bible-believing Christians. But I also want to warn you that I recognize that if you start talking about this at work, talking to people, and you end up talking to people that you know or work alongside of, and you talk about all kinds of things, you say, yeah, my pastor's talking about the end of the, end of the world and the Lord's return and what it's going to be like. And So I'm warning you, you might get put into the category of cuckoo. Because it is a little bit strange. The teaching is not real easy, and this Olivet Discourse is, remember, it's apocalyptic literature, not apocryphal literature. Um, it, it's not easy to discern. And our disciples, uh, these disciples have asked our Lord Jesus some specific questions, asking him to please explain to them what might be some very specific signs of the end of the age indicating his return? Now, I want to say something before I re we read our text. Matthew 24, have your notes ready. They will be helpful today. This passage, as we study it, just, just kind of listen for a second here. This passage is not about the rapture. It's about the second coming of Christ. I just wanted to be sure and say that up front so that you kind of have that clear. Now, some of you don't know the difference between the rapture and the second coming, and that's okay. We're going to get there. We will, we will try to make very clear 
The distinctive teaching between the rapture of the church, we would call it, that's a snatching away that the Bible talks about. That's very, very, woo okay? And that'll really get you put in the category of cuckoo, I'm telling you. The Bible teaches it. There will be a, a catching away of Christ's church. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. I really believe in Matthew 24 and 25, first of all, the church isn't there. And that's the other thing I wanted to say about this passage. Not only is this a focus on the second coming of Christ, his second advent when he returns. Okay, so the rapture of the church when we meet the Lord in the air is different. Some people glump it in with a part of his second coming, but it's not his second coming when he's going to come to earth and everything's going to change and he's going to rule and reign and institute his millennial kingdom. Okay, so that's what this passage is talking about, the second coming, not the rapture. It's also, this is not the church really, there's some application to the church here, but it's not the church that's being talked about here nearly so much as this is specifically prophetic passages that pertain largely to Israel, all right? And, and it's not always evident, but I believe that that is the best way to understand these passages. Well, our disciples have asked our Lord a three-part question. Let's let our eyes go to Matthew chapter 24, verse 3, and let's remind ourselves, Matthew 24, verse 3, let's remind ourselves of the setting in which we find our Lord teaching about the end of the age. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. We reminded you that Mark's account, Mark 13, that he says that this is Peter, James, John, and Andrew. They came to him and said, tell us, When will these things be? They mean a statement that our Lord just made about the temple being torn down completely. When will that happen? And what will be the sign of your coming? And what will be the sign of the end of the age? A three-part question. When is this stuff going to happen? When are you coming back? And what will be the sign of the end of the world or the end of the age? We've already started in and we've covered briefly, the first 14 verses two weeks ago. And basically that's summarized in verse 8 where our Lord has given the indicators. And this is the passage that talks about earthquakes and famine and false prophets. But he says in verse 8, but all of these things are but the beginning of birth pains. They are the beginning of birth pains. And this is something that is going to go on and on and it's building I'll use the picture of birth pains. I don't know a lot about that, but what I do know is that they start a little bit slowly, I think, and, and it's kind of like, oh, yeah. And then, oh, oh, okay, and I'll stop right there, and you just keep going, and it builds, and what's happening? There's a progression, and it's intensifying, right? And that's the analogy that our Lord is using of the signs of the times, I also believe that there's sort of layers of prophecy here. There are things that our Lord is talking about that some of those things we can already chronicle in history. Some of these things as they were forward-looking, or when we look at Daniel this morning, Daniel was forward-looking. Some of that has come, has been fulfilled, but it also serves as a foreshadowing of some of the things that will happen in the last days, particularly the last seven years, 
known as the tribulation period, the last three and a half years of which we call the great tribulation period. And think the birth pangs are still going. They're going right into that tribulation period. And in fact, if you would read Revelation chapter 6, you don't have to go there right now, but you could note this. Revelation chapter 6 where our Lord is found worthy to open the seals of these scrolls, and he breaks the seals, opens the scrolls, and they bring forth categories of judgment. That Revelation 6 and the seal judgments that are unfolded track, very parallel, the birth pains that our Lord talks about in Matthew chapter 24, verses 4 through 14. There's going to be these horses that these seals are going to indicate. And, and they're going to represent false prophets. They're going to represent famine. They're going to represent death and dying. They're going to re- represent the martyrdom of believers and the widespread death of humanity. These are all what is broken out in the seals. And many Bible students believe that our Lord Jesus, even as he's presenting these birth pains in the first part of Matthew chapter 24, that it's even reflective of the beginning three and a half years or so, or some of the categories of judgments that will come in this great tribulation period. And yet, there's parts of it that apply to Israel in the nearer time from the time that our Lord is speaking this. So there's Fulfillment of prophecy kind of nearer, and, and, and it ends up being a foreshadowing of what's even going to happen at the end of the age. What happens then is it's difficult to discern, well, what is our Lord talking about exactly? Some of it has some ambiguity to it, and I'm telling you that a lot of trees have been killed to produce the paper and large drums of oil to produce the ink, or whatever ink's made out of, to print in the debate and in the conversation and in the discussion of what was our Lord exactly talking about here. I hope to be helpful this morning. And where we are now, we're with our disciples. Okay, we read verse on the Mount of Olives. It's called the Olivet Discourse because they're on the Mount of Olives. We're only two days away from the cross. This is the very end of our Lord's ministry, two days away. They have left the temple. They have gone up on the Mount of Olives. They are viewing the temple. And the disciples are asking this question. And so picture that, will you? Okay, so Peter, James, Andrew, and John have kind of huddled around our Lord Jesus. I picture a little bit of beef jerky in the cheek here, a little bit, elbows on the knees. Come on, Lord, would you just tell us now, what are going to be the indicators? And our Lord has already gone through the verse 4 through 14, the birth pains, famine, earthquake. These things are going to happen. There's going to be deceptive false teachers But yet the gospel is going to be spread all around the world. And let your eyes go to the end of verse 14 now. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. And they all just ducked in a little bit farther. And they took another chew of their beef jerk. And then the end will come. This is what they really want to know. When's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? Verse 15, the beginning of our text today. Jesus continues... in their rapt attention. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, parentheses, let the reader understand. So Jesus knew that people were going to read about this in the future. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. There's a reference to Israel, by the way. Okay, Speaking specifically to people who live in this region, 
Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. In other words, it will be horrible. Pray that your flight might not be in winter or on a Sabbath. Wouldn't that be a strange thing to say to the church? Who cares less about the Sabbath than Christian people in the church? It's to Israel. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. And the expression of that verse clearly indicates, doesn't it, that it will be the ultimate, all-time worst tribulation, incomparable with any other time in history, as bad as it's been. And if those days had not been cut short, No human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. God has his people in every generation, in every area, in every category, and even, and I believe these words are referencing the last three and a half years of the tribulation called the Great Tribulation. The 144,000 evangelists of Revelation will be leading people to Christ. People will be saved even in the Great Tribulation. Many Israelite Jewish people will be saved. And God will have his people there and for the sake of the elect for the sake of the of the followers of christ he will according to his sovereign timeline cut those days off otherwise and you can read about this i was going to get to it today but i'm warning you we're only going to get through point letter a point one and two um we were going to go to revelation 16 you have to come back next week is really interesting as the bold judgments pour out in revelation 16 you will see verse 21 This great tribulation as the bold judgments of Revelation 16 pour out such as has not been seen from the beginning of the world until now. And if the days had not been cut short, if God's sovereign timeline didn't stop at three and a half years with his great coming on the great white horse, our great King General Jesus with the sword coming out of his mouth to stop it all and to take care of the one who is the abominator, no humanity would be able to live through the bold judgments. That the wrath of God pouring out in Revelation 16. I believe that's what it's a reference to. Then if anyone says to you, verse 23, look, here is the Christ, or there he is. Do not believe that. Jesus, oh, the disciples are hunkering. Okay, they're going to, false prophets. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. It's not possible, but if you could, these guys are so convincing and it's going to cost them their lives even. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. It's going to be a visible thing. You're going to be able to see it. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Whatever that means, come back next week. Well, that's our text for today. Are you with me mentally? We've left the temple two days away from the cross. The disciples want to know when's the end of the age. They're up on the Mount of Olives looking down on the temple. Jesus has just told them the temple's going to be destroyed. They want to know. They're leaning in. They're listening. And our Lord has explained the birth pain so far. And we pick it up at verse 15 in our outline with this A, letter A, an unmistakable event. Jesus is now detailing what to watch for very close to the end of the age and his time of his return. So when you see 
the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, verse 15, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So the disciples are supposed to know a couple things here. Okay? There's an event. There's birth pains. And now our Lord says, but when the abomination of desolation takes place, then you will know. And by the way, you know Daniel wrote about this. And you see in there that our Lord is expecting the disciples to have already understood a little bit about what Daniel wrote about? Oh yeah, I remember reading about the abomination of desolation in Daniel. Uh, I don't, do you? We know Daniel, don't we? We love Daniel. Daniel was such a man of God. We love to name our children Daniel. We name, we hope our daughters marry Daniel. We love Daniel. He stood for Christ. He Remember chapter 1 of Daniel, in captivity, here he is, all alone in a faraway country, and he refuses to eat the king's wine, the king's meat, has this contest where he eats vegetables or corn husks or whatever he eats, husks, and, and he turns out 10 days later to be healthier than all of the king's men who were drinking wine and eating meat and so forth, because he didn't want to defile himself. He was committed to Yahweh and to the law of Moses. We know Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel. We know Daniel and the lion's den in the book of Daniel. We know Nebuchadnezzar, and we know Nebuchadnezzar going crazy. And we know King Darius and the handwriting on the wall. But then we get to the last few chapters of the book of Daniel, and then it just kind of falls apart for us. You know why? Because Daniel... Daniel is writing now at the last parts of the, cha- of the book of Daniel, he's writing about visions that he's seen. And in those visions, Daniel talks about the abomination of desolation. The disciples have read those work, that material, and Jesus says what Daniel talked about, the abomination of desolation, when that happens, then you will know the time is near. So if we can figure out what the abomination of desolation is and we can watch for it when it happens, we would know that it was time to flee to the mountains, wouldn't we? So let's do that. First of all, as we study this unmistakable event, we know that it's a sign of the time. Let's just define it. First of all, abomination is what? It's something that is loathsome and it is detestable. So when you talk about something that is an abomination, we know that we're talking about something that is very detestable and loathsome. Secondly, if it's an abomination of desolation, then it has the idea of of making something unclean or ruining it to ruin or make wretched, to ruin or make wretched. So it is something loathsome and detestable that is going to ruin something special and it's going to make it wretched and horrible and unusable. So something is going to happen to contaminate something that is precious to the reader so that they will know that the Lord's return is very near. Now I need you to know, and let's just look at our outline for a minute, that this abomination of desolation is predicted by Daniel, number one, and that's what we're going to look at. It is detailed by Luke, it is referenced by Paul, and it is described by John. We're only going to get through Daniel and Luke this morning, okay? I've had two shots at it, and I already know that's what's going to happen. So let's take our Bibles and let's study Let's go to Daniel and let's look and see if we can discern what Jesus is telling the disciples. There they are, elbows on knees, 
digging in for another round of beef jerky, trying to figure out what it was they remembered reading in the book of Daniel about the abomination of desolation. So as we turn to our Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, we're going to have to go to the latter part of the book of Daniel, and we're going to begin, um, as Daniel predicts, this abomination of desolation, which is an unmistakable event that our Lord is presenting as a trigger event or a key event to watch for. Let's go to Daniel 11, first of all, okay? So as, even as I'm turning in my Bible to Daniel 11, um, actually, I want to go to Daniel 9, not Daniel 11. I want to go to Daniel 11 last. I want to go to Daniel 9 first. As I'm turning in my Bible to Daniel 9, my eyes glance down at my chapter heading of, of chapter 10. And what does it say? It's entitled, which is not inspired by Scripture, but it's a summary of what's in chapter 10, Daniel's terrifying vision of a man. Daniel's having visions here. Now, let me try to give you some background, and then we're going to look at his specific words about the abominator and the, the desolator, the abomination of desolation that goes on here. But you kind of have to understand a couple things, and it's, it's a little bit weird. It's a little bit difficult. Maybe your Bible is broken down into sections as well, but Daniel in chapter 9 has been praying one of the things he's been praying about is he has been studying the prophets of the Old Testament and he has figured out that at least 70 years has gone by that Israel's been in captivity and the time of their captivity should be up. You see, the Israelites did not keep the Sabbath law. They violated the Sabbath and so God judged them and punished them for not keeping their Sabbath, especially their every seventh year Sabbath year of rest. They did that so many times that our Lord said, okay, you refused to give a Sabbath rest in the land when you were in the land and I was your God and I was leading you and you ignored these Sabbath rests. You did that so many times. I, I'm going to scatter you, let enemies take over you and you're going to do a Sabbath rest scattered out. You're going to have to be punished for it. And it was kind of like year for year. And so Daniel had figured out that they had paid back the Sabbath years. About 70 years had gone by. And he's praying, and he's praying for God to take him back into the land. And Lord, isn't it time? Lord, haven't we, haven't we met the, the standard of your judgment? Haven't we paid back through this, this dispersion and this horrible time when Israel's been ransacked and men like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have been living in Iraq, what is present-day Iraq, in Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom of Babylon. And so, so he's praying like this. And then he gets a vision. And if you take the time, and we absolutely don't have time, and this would admittedly be a, probably easier to do if, like Tom Jessern was teaching it in a classroom with a whiteboard and a PowerPoint and some marker pens and some notes, and everybody had a cup of coffee or a bottle of water, and you could ask questions. It's kind of a classroom thing. And it gets in real detail, and it's hard to understand. But Daniel is told by God that the 70 isn't just 70 years, but it's 70 times 7. And, and in, in this passage, those 70 years times 7, which is 490 years, is called weeks. Now that's really confusing, isn't it? So think of it this way. So it's like 
every week has how many days? Seven days. And so instead of seven days, it's a week of years, not a week of days. It's a week of years. And so what the vision comes to Daniel through the angel Gabriel and and the visions that he's having in prayer, and he's writing down these prophetic visions, God begins to make clear to him that this isn't over yet. And there's going to be 490 years, going to be 70 times seven years, 490 What's interesting, all right, is that, that if you track the chronology of this, when Nehemiah, under Artaxerxes, in the book of Nehemiah, went back to rebuild the walls from the time that he got permission and headed back to rebuild the walls until the Lord Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday, it's exactly 483 years. There's 483 years. So it's seven years less than what Daniel was told they would have to still be penalized. It was supposed to be 490 years, not 483 years. So there's one week of years left over that Israel hasn't paid for yet. All right? And that's what we call, have you heard us talk around the church of the 70th week of Daniel? It's the 70th week of Daniel. Let me just fast forward, and if you study and put the scripture together and go to the book of Revelation, the 70th week of Daniel is synonymous with what we would call the tribulation period. All right? And it's a seven-year period, and part of the reason we think that it's a literal seven-year period is because the 483 years before it were literal years. You follow me? And so here we go, and... Daniel is going to be told about something that's going to happen in the 70th week. When we study our Bibles, we find out that the 70th week hasn't taken place yet. So now we have Daniel chapter 9 open in front of us, and we're going to look right at verse 31. Do you see why I only got through letter A, 1, and 2? And so here we are, Daniel 9, verse 31. There is no 31. Daniel... 927 Daniel 927 I keep looking at 11 I'm sorry about that okay and he and he shall make a strong cup who's he he is the one later in this very verse who's going to cause the abomination of desolation it's the antichrist is who it is okay and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. Remember, this is the end of a, this is part and the end of a dream and a vision, and Daniel's writing it down. And he will make a strong covenant with many for one week. Okay, so in the, in the 70th week of Daniel, in the tribulation period, the Antichrist is going to make a covenant and bring peace with Israel, all the surrounding nations, and he's going to be a peacemaker in the world. He's going to do that by surfacing as a strong political leader, and he's going to make a covenant that's going to bring peace. If there's any hot spot in the world today, isn't it Israel and the surrounding nations? And it's never going to get solved. Right here in Shepherdstown, was it Menachem Begin and Anwar Sadat? Was it whoever it was, the Egyptian leader, the Israeli leader, and President Jimmy Carter, wasn't it, met? And they met right here, and, and we had a peace talk, and oh, we thought, and then they killed each other. And they're still 
at war, right? They hate each other, and the nations surrounding Israel want to wipe them off the face of the earth. And Iran would love to wipe them off the face of the earth. And Russia would like to own them. And China would like to own Israel. And everybody surrounds Israel, this little, tiny, insignificant nation. And why does everybody care? It's right there. It's part of, part of prophetic fulfillment. And so... Later, he's going to make in this one week, this final seven-year period, he's going to make a covenant of peace. But now look what happens. And for half of the week, okay, so if a week is seven years, if it's a week of seven years, what would half of it be? Three and a half years. Three and a half years into this time, this is what we would say would trigger the Great Tribulation. What's going to happen? And for half of the week, three and a half years, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall come one who makes desolate. Do you see the abomination of desolation there? And on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. What's that saying? The Antichrist is the desolator. Halfway through his peace agreement in the 70th week of Daniel, three and a half years in, he's going to do something that is absolutely despicable and offensive. And it has to do with the end of sacrifice and offerings. It has to do with temple worship in Israel. You see, the temple will be rebuilt. The temple will be rebuilt. They will be worshiping. It's about Israel. It's not about the church. The church has already been raptured. And the The Antichrist is going to possibly use religious leaders of Israel to help make this peace. And somehow, according to their religion, he's going to become highly offensive. He is going to bring an abomination and it's going to make desolate. That means something loathsome and detestable that is going to ruin and make wretched something that is precious. And they're going to make desolate until the decreed end. And that's when King Jesus is going to come on his white horse with the sword out of his mouth, put an end to the desolator. And with the word of his mouth, he's going to cast him into a dungeon for a thousand years. And after that, the eternal lake of fire forever and ever and ever. We'll read about that in the last chapters of the book of Revelation. All right. We're back up on the Mount of Olives. The disciples are leaning in. They're chewing on their beef jerky. And they're listening with both ears and they're thinking, okay, Daniel said abomination of desolation will take place. Something loathes them that's going to happen when he puts an end to sacrifice and offerings. It has to do with the temple. It has to do with worship. It has to do with their faith. Let's go to chapter 12 and let's notice another spot where he, Daniel mentions it. And in Daniel chapter 12, verse 11, he references three and a half years again And from the time, he's referencing the offerings again, Daniel 12, 11, and from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away, okay, so the the ritualistic worship of Israel is going to be removed from them, and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, so it's in opposition to their regular offering system, This desolate thing is going to take place. There shall be then 1,290 days, which is 30 days more than three and a half years. And nobody really knows exactly why the 30 days got added on. Okay, so Daniel 9 and Daniel 
12 both tell us that something's going to happen to do with the offering system, something holy, it's going to be desecrated, it's going to be ruined, and it's going to happen three and a half years into the 70th week of Daniel. Let's go now to chapter 11, where there's another passage that is a, a vision, and it's prophetic. And I mean this stuff, okay, you do some homework, and you read the last four chapters of the book of Daniel, and then you come and preach it. I'm telling you, this stuff is bizarre. It's hard to know what's going on. Okay, and here's chapter 11, and let's look at verse 31. There's that verse 31 I was after. Daniel chapter 11, verse 31 specifically, forces from him, who's him? The one who profanes the temple, the desolator, the Antichrist, forces from him shall appear and they shall profane the temple and the fortress and shall take away, there it is again, this offering thing, they shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. All right, just stop looking at the notes and look up here a minute. Jesus said, key event. I'm an undisputable, totally recognizable event's going to take place, and it's going to be the abomination of desolation that you read about in Daniel. The disciples' minds are whirling. What did I read in Daniel? What did I read in Daniel? Oh, yeah, yeah. Chapter 9, chapter 11, chapter 12. And it has to do with the offering, it has to do with worship, and it has to do with the desecration of that sacred place. Now, this was interesting to me. In reading commentaries... And Bible students, on this passage, it was interesting to me that no matter what theological position you take on eschatology, no matter what theological position you are from, whether you're dispensationalist or covenantal or whether you're preterist or futurist, it didn't matter, almost every single one of them agree that what Daniel was talking about in chapter 11 actually was a prophecy and it already came true. And now you can look back down at your notes. They say that this was fulfilled by Antiochus Epiphanes in 165 BC when he invaded Jerusalem. And here's what he did. He went into their temple and on the altar, which was the most sacred of all places where they worshiped God, he took the altar and he commandeered it, and he slaughtered a pig. Nothing was more unclean than a pig, probably, to Jews. Antiochus Epiphanes goes in there, wreaks havoc, slaughters a pig on the altar, and then he set up a statue, they believe, probably of Zeus, and he forced the priests to eat the pig and worship Zeus. And it was called the Abomination of Desolation. He took that which was most sacred and pure and holy and he desecrated it. And Bible students believe that that is a living prototype of what the Antichrist will do and what Daniel was talking about in chapter 9 and chapter 12, halfway through the 70th week of Daniel has not happened yet and that there will be some event 
The Lord did not return in the sky or the end of the age after 70 AD. It is something yet future. And the Antichrist is three and a half years into the 70th week of Daniel is going to create an abomination of desolation. Some literalists believe that he's going to do exactly that, that he's going to go back right up in there. He's going to do exactly and copy uh, and Antiochus and he's going to slaughter a pig on the altar because Temple worship will be reactivated. It's another reason we believe that the church is not in the tribulation period, that it's focused on the Jews. It is the fulfillment of their 70th week. It has to do with them. And that they're going to reinstate temple worship, and it's going to be an abomination. He's going to slaughter a pig. But if we had time to get to what John is talking about in this very outline, if you go to John in in Revelation... The Antichrist is not going to set up, though, a statue of Zeus and force them to worship Zeus. He's going to set up a statue of himself. And the, the beast or the Antichrist is going to create a statue of himself three and a half years after peace, 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 peace. Three and a half years in, he's going to do the abomination of desolation. That means the end is coming. It's only three and a half years away. And what Jesus already said in this passage, it's a good thing it was only three and a half years because by the time they went through it, if he didn't cut it off at three and a half years, no human would ever exist on the face of the planet. It would have scorched him off the earth. And when you read Revelation chapter 16 and the bowl judgment spilling out, you see that there is no time that ever compares on earth to Revelation chapter 16. And so the Antichrist is going to set up a statue of himself. He's going to desecrate the worship in the temple. And the false prophet, all the false prophets that Jesus warned about in Matthew 24, the false prophet is going to convince the whole world to worship the statue of the beast, which is the Antichrist, which he sets up as part of the abomination of desolation. And so when there's a worldwide leader who has a statue of himself and he's making the whole world worship it, and the mark of that beast is what? 666, you will know that the end is very near. And the disciples lean in a little closer on their elbows and they're like, wow. The desolation of abomination that Daniel talked about. Well, let's take a few minutes and so I can keep you on track with the other two services. By the way, filling in your notes, what I wrote there was Antiochus Epiphanes, is a type, in my opinion, in my opinion, based upon the reflection of Scripture, he is a type of the Antichrist. He is a living version. And this is an example where in Daniel's prophecy you have an immediate or a a near fulfillment and you have a far away fulfillment. I think you exactly have the same thing in Matthew 24 of things that were going to happen in Judea, in Jerusalem, to Israelites. It was near and it was far away. Let's go to Luke chapter 21 and let's do number two and then we'll go home. And you have to come back next week. This is way too cool of stuff to miss church, right? Matthew chapter 21, excuse me, Luke chapter 21. And we are now in Luke's account of the Olivet Discourse. Now, listen as you turn to Luke 21. Remember that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic gospels. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke parallel each other. They tell similar, they have a similar framework in their approach. And you can reread the stories in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John stands alone. A dear brother in our church pointed something out to me when he asked me a question this week. And I felt like I've been confusing. And it helped me, actually. 
So I've been saying all along in our study that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, are all eyewitness accounts. But remember, duh, Mark was not a disciple. But Mark wrote, and it was, it's true that it was likely an eyewitness account. The church fathers credit Mark's gospel as his record of the apostle Peter telling Mark what he observed and Mark wrote it down. And I have not been clear about that. So it is indeed an eyewitness account, but it's Peter's, likely Peter's eyewitness account written down by Mark. So Matthew and Peter would have been disciples. Mark wrote down Peter's account. Luke was not a disciple, but he was a historian and a researcher. And he went around and interviewed everybody who had been around Jesus and wrote it down. And it matches up with Peter's account written by Mark and Matthew's account. Is that helpful a little bit as we understand our Bibles? And uh, that was helpful to clarify in my own mind. I had overlooked some details that, that I should have paid attention to and been a little more clear from the pulpit. So let's look here in these final minutes. Okay, where are we? We're talking about this unmistakable event that's recorded in Matthew 24, verse 15, as the disciples listen on the Mount of Olives to our Lord Jesus, as he says, when the abomination of desolation takes place, you will know that my end is near. Run to the mountains. Hopefully you won't be pregnant. Hopefully it won't be wintertime. Hopefully it won't be Sabbath day. Definitely with Jewish overtones and Judean overtone. And now we're looking at Luke 21 at his account of that same exact teaching. And notice what is detailed by Luke here. Luke chapter 21, beginning with verse 20. And you'll recognize some of this as similar to Matthew's writing. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. Okay, Matthew didn't say that. Luke says, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, Jesus said, then know that its desolation has come near. I don't think this is the abomination of desolation that's being talked about, but it is the idea that Jerusalem is going to be made desolate. It's a little different, even though the word desolation is used, that's not the desolation of abomination. Then let those who are in Judea, we read this in Matthew, flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart, and let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, it'll be horrible. For there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people, Israel. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. All right, remember I said, I believe what we're studying here, uh, as prophetic scriptures often do, they have kind of a, a nearer or a, a first level of fulfillment, and then they have a future fulfillment, and I think that's exactly what's happening here as well. But Luke gives us some detail, and I noticed that Bible commentaries are all in agreement on this too, and there's very little debate among uh, even theologians with a wide theological spectrum of position. They all agree that much of what Luke is talking here was fulfilled in our Lord's words, was fulfilled in 70 A.D. when Rome came and trashed Jerusalem and tore down the temple. In 70 A.D., a general named Titus, who would become the emperor, brought his armies in there and totally ransacked Israel. The people who were there, horrible things happened. That's when they burned the temple 
And the story is told of the gold melting down in between the cracks and they pried apart the rocks, pulled it all apart to get the gold out so that every single stone of the temple, massive as they were, was moved and, and, and taken, torn down and tumbled down. That was 40 years after our Lord sat on the Mount of Olives and gave this Olivet Discourse with these disciples attentively listening. Forty years later is when this happens. Let's take a look at the verse quickly. It's not difficult to follow. Notice in verse 20, he says they will, that Israel, Jerusalem itself, will be surrounded by armies. And that is exactly what happened with the Roman destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD with, the, with uh, General Titus, the future emperor. Notice then, let your eyes go to verse 24. They will fall by the edge of the sword... They will fall by the edge of the sword in verse 24. Josephus, an extra biblical, not in the Bible, but a, a mostly accurate historian who lived a little while after this time, Josephus said 1.1 million Jews were killed by the Romans at this time. So this is part of Israelite history. This is part of Jewish history. That in 70 AD, Titus came in and he put 1.1 million Jews to the edge of the sword. Jesus said, they will fall by the edge of the sword. And they will be led captive into all nations, verse 24b. Josephus also says that 97,000 captives were taken into Egypt, out of which most were sold into slavery throughout the entire known world of the day. And that indeed was the beginning of what we call the diaspora. The scattering of the Jews. By the time the Romans got done, Israel, Jerusalem was unrecognizable. They had totally trodden it underfoot. And that's what it says. Look what it says in D. We'll be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. Not only is that representative of exactly what happened in Jerusalem that day in 70 AD when they tore down the temple, ransacked the city, put 1.1 million people to the edge of the sword, sold 97,000 into slavery who scattered them all around the world. When the Romans were done, they said that they tore down the temple to the extent, and I don't think I said this before, um, but the temple was so destroyed and every stone taken from on top of the other stone, and you know part of that is part of the wailing wall today. They know that that was part of the temple complex, but to this day they do not know the very footer of where the temple stood. They don't know the exact spot. They've been working on figuring that all out because they want to rebuild it. But it was so taken down that it's, it's, it's indiscernible where things were. They don't even know exactly where, how the buildings were arranged there because there were multiple buildings in the temple complex. And it says, they will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. And isn't this indicative of the history of the Jews worldwide ever since? And then look at letter E, until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. You see, what began in the first century continues to this day. What happened? By the way, where did all, how did the Jews get spread worldwide? In the diaspora. They no longer had a nation. They no longer had a city. They no longer had a capital. They no longer had an army. They no longer had a king until 1948. So when you were reading your Bible and studying prophecy before 1948, it was a little bit confusing. And one of the things that Bible teachers used to talk about is, the, is that Israel would one day rebuild. 
and that they would one day have a nation again. And I'm telling you, it caused a great stir among the Bible students in 1948. My dad was at Moody Bible Institute. And when Israel was coming together as a nation, they saw Bible prophecy coming alive right before their very eyes. We think nothing of it. And from, from 70 AD to 1948, the Jews were scattered like trash around the world and they were trampled underfoot like trash. How many Jews were killed in Poland? How many Jews were killed in Nazi Germany? How many Jews were killed in Russia? You find me a place where Jews have not been hated, killed, murdered, abused, destroyed. It's right there in scripture. Trampled underfoot in the times of the Gentiles. God is dealing with the Gentiles, not the Jews right now. The 70th week of Daniel. So there's a gap. 69 weeks to the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, then there's a gap, and we're living in the gap, and God is dealing with his church. And then the 70th week of Daniel will start up again. You got all this down? Huh? Huh? Wow. I don't know, one thing is, even this, and I feel like I only have snippets of it. I only have snippets of it. I'm awed by my Bible. And what an incredible reality we have right here in front of us. How the disciples were supposed to understand that the abomination of desolation was a trigger event. And then the end will be near. Hasn't happened yet. It was, it was foreshadowed by Antiochus Epiphanes. And that's the model. But that's not the, the ultimate event. These times that are worse than any time the world has ever seen. You see, you could argue that World War II was harder on the Jews than 70 A.D. And in the last three and a half years of the Great Tribulation, it's going to be harder on the Jews. And the outpouring of God's wrath from the bowls of his wrath, read Revelation 16, will make World War II destruction look like nothing. Let's stand and pray. Well, Father, what a privilege to study the very words of our Lord Jesus, to study the very vision that Daniel wrote down, word for word, protected and guided by your Holy Spirit. Father, we approach this carefully, without any arrogance. We recognize we're babes in the woods here. We do want to be students of the word, and we want to recognize the times in which we live. Would you help us to have our eyes on Christ? Would you give us a growing understanding of who we are and how we fit into your prophetic framework? What you're doing now, building your church in this gap time between the 69th and 70th years of Daniel. Father, as the birth pains continue around us, and they will in an ever-increasing manner, would you help us to keep our eyes on Jesus? To not waver in our faith, to not follow after false prophets, to not be panicked or fearful, to look forward to being with you, being like you, being present with you, and to just being an obedient, faithful church, your bride in the meantime. In Jesus' name we pray, Lord, with thanksgiving today. Amen.